The word dharma means the truth, means natural law, means the way things are. It also means the teachings of the Buddha, Buddha Dharma. The two great wings of the Dharma are wisdom and compassion. And we, be, we need both of these wings to fly on this great journey, this great flight of awakening. Without wisdom, we may have compassion for the suffering in the world, but we won't necessarily have the understanding of how best to alleviate it. We may have wisdom and insight into the suffering that exists, but without compassion, we don't have that deep motivation to actually act and do something. So tonight I'd like to talk about compassion, about what it is, the wisdom that gives rise to it, and also how we can manifest it in the world. So as you all know, that feeling of compassion is that very strong and deep sense, or deep feeling, that wants to alleviate the suffering of beings. It's the power of the heart that is actually moved to act, to take action. And it was this feeling that motivated the Bodhisattva, the Buddha, before his enlightenment, for all those countless lifetimes. I mean, just think of the struggles and the ups and downs you've had in 10 days. The Buddha, in his long journey, the Bodhisattva, in his long journey to Buddhahood, countless lifetimes of practice, motivated by what? Motivated by compassion, wanting to alleviate the suffering of beings. Compassion arises when we allow ourselves to come close to suffering, whether it's our own or the suffering of others. It's really a profound practice. Dalai Lama said, compassion and love are precious things in life. They are not complicated. They are simple, but they are difficult to practice. Now, we may want to be compassionate, and maybe often are, but it's not always easy to open to the suffering that's there. Just as we might not want to acknowledge our own pain, as you've seen, undoubtedly, during the retreat, it's not easy to open to the pain, to the difficulties, just as we don't often like to open to our own, it's not always that easy to open to the pain of others. There are very strong tendencies in our minds that keep us defended in the face of suffering. You know, will keep us withdrawn or indifferent or apathetic. A favorite oft-told story it's actually one of my favorites, is of a friend of mine, this is actually a story of his, 
talking about his grandfather and his father. Driving along on December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor Day. So his grandfather now and his father are driving along in the car, listening to the radio, hearing the announcements about Pearl Harbor, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And the first thing that his grandfather says to his father is, don't tell your mother. <laughs> now, World War II would be a big one to keep out. <laughs> no, okay, don't upset your mother. It's a, it's a funny story, but it, it resonates somehow. Because in one way or another, to some extent or another, we all do that. You know, just as an experiment, you know, if you can recall, really watch the attitude in your mind the next time you come close to a situation of suffering. It might be some pain in the body. What is the first response? Oh, good, welcome. <laughs> Probably not. You know, or what's the first response in the mind to the suffering of emotional distress? You know, maybe discontent or fear or loneliness or jealousy or anger or despair, whatever it is. Do we really open? Are we willing to come close to the suffering or do we feel that tendency to keep it out, to keep defended, to withdraw? Now, now, with so many vivid images in the media of the immense amount of suffering in the world, you know, it's like we're bombarded with these images. How do we relate to them? You know, do we feel uneasy? Do we feel overwhelmed? Do we numb out? Or can we let it in? Can we actually let the suffering in? I'd like to read part of a poem by Mary Oliver, who is really a wonderful poet. Uh, it's called Beyond the Snow Belt. <clears throat> Over the local stations, one by one, announcers list disasters like dark poems that always happen in the skull of winter. But once again, the storm has passed us by. Lovely and moderate, the snow lies down while shouting children hurry back to play. And scarved and smiling citizens once more sweep down their easy paths of pride and welcome. And what else might we do? Let us be truthful. Two counties north, the storm has taken lives. Two counties north to us is far away. A land of trees, a wild place never visited. So we forget with ease each far mortality. How shall examples move us from our calm? I do not say that it is not a fault 
I only say, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. I think that's just so true. You know, we hear so much, so much suffering from two counties north or from across the ocean. And it's very hard to let it in. Except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. Well, I think the question for us is how can our hearts stay open to the magnitude of suffering that exists in the world? It is, is it even possible to open to it all with compassion? This question or this challenge is not a theoretical one. It's really not a philosophical question. Because it's not enough to admire the qualities of love and compassion in others, you know, in these great beings who seem to manifest it so beautifully. It's not enough to kind of idealize these emotions. You know, think, yeah, they're great. It would be really nice if we had some. Our practice is really about the transformation of our own consciousness that makes this openness of heart possible. Are we willing to do the work? Some years ago, I read an article in the Harvard Medical Journal about a Tibetan doctor, Tenzin Chodruk, You might have heard of, he traveled in this country quite a bit. He was imprisoned in 1959 by the communist Chinese in Tibet and was in prison for 21 years. And he said, and this was described in the article, that for 17 of those years, he was tortured physically and psychologically. And he said that his life was threatened daily during that time. You can imagine the intensity of this. In the article, he described four points of understanding that made possible not only his survival, because people do survive in terrible situations in many different ways. So these points of understanding describe not only his survival, but his ability to emerge from that situation with his heart still open, with his heart still compassionate, not consumed by hatred or fear. So what are these four four points? I think they very much relate to our own lives and our own practice. The first insight he talked about was his understanding or his ability to put his situation in a larger context. He said he saw that in the most deplorable human conditions, some human greatness can be accomplished. So that that was the context that he held it in. That in the face of great suffering, overwhelming suffering, he could practice love. So in times of 
much less difficulty in our lives. And we're not talking about 17 years of imprisonment and torture. In times of much less difficulty, can we remember this? You know, someone disturbs us or irritates us. Is our reaction annoyance, judgment, anger, irritation? Or even after our first reaction, which might be one of those things, can we remember to ask the question of ourselves, what human greatness can be accomplished? We're in a difficult situation. Can we enlarge the context? Dalai Lama has often taught you know, that your enemy teaches you patience. And again, we might hear that and say, that's true. But in the very moment when we're facing or being with a difficult person, do we remember that? It's very easy to be patient when no one is bothering us. <laughs> and it's interesting because th that line of the Dalai Lama is, it, it has stayed in my mind, and so I've really tried to apply it, you know, in times of some interpersonal difficulty. And it's amazing how difficult it is not to get caught in some kind of judgment, you know, or blame, or, and to remember, okay, what greatness of heart can be accomplished? Even something as simple as, can I be patient here? Can I be non-reactive? Can I hold it? So this is a very day-to-day -day practice for us. So the second insight he had that helped him survive with a heart still open was the understanding that his enemies, his torturers, were human beings like himself who were also in extremely adverse situations and who would one day pay a great price for their cruel actions. And that's an amazing ability. Now, somebody is really harming us. And to be able to drop into that place of commonality of humanity understanding the law of karma, that all actions will inevitably bring their consequences, bring their results. Inflicting harm will inevitably bring about suffering to those beings. And to remember that, and to see and understand the law of karma not as a vehicle of revenge, but as a vehicle of compassion. His third insight was understanding the importance of humility, forgetting about self-importance or self-righteousness. And he said he attached his very survival to being able to let go of those feelings, letting go of self-importance, letting go of self-righteousness, 
And in our own lives, we can see how easily those feelings arise when we feel somebody is harming us or hurting us, or we're offended in some way. Even in situations that are completely impersonal, where it's totally inappropriate, and still we feel self-righteous. So I'll just share one story out of countless ones. This was back in my early days of practicing in India. And in the summer months, Bodh Gaya, it's the place of the Buddha's enlightenment, which is where I would be practicing in the winter, I would go up to the mountains. We rented this cottage up in Dalhousie, which is what they call a hill station. You know, and it's about 7,000 feet. And magnificent. You know, from there you can see the high peaks of the Himalayas. And it was just a wonderful place to be and to practice. And it was cool. So I, we rented this little cottage and I'm doing intensive practice. Then about a few weeks into this retreat I was doing, in a field just below the cottage, a group called the Delhi Girls camped out. And the Delhi girls were kind of a paramilitary Girl Scout troop. <laughs> but that, that was fine. That was not the problem. The problem was that they put up loudspeakers and from 6 in the morning till 10 at night they would be blaring this Hindi film music. So I'm sitting there, you know, in, out, in, out, in, out. And this just amazing amount of noise was coming. And I was getting just angrier and angrier. And then the self-righteousness, how can they do this to me? You know, I came to India to get enlightened. And don't they know that? And, you know, they're playing all this music. And I was writing all kinds of letters in my mind to the mayor of Dalhousie. And I was totally amazed that nobody else seemed to mind. You know, this just seemed part of the culture and... It took me weeks. I mean, it took me weeks of practicing, of just being able to let it in, to get over these feelings of being so offended, you know, that they were disturbing my practice in such an obnoxious way. But it was only obnoxious to me. It wasn't obnoxious to anybody else. It was a process of letting go of that feeling of self-importance. It's really understanding in a fundamental way the meaning of humility. And humility is not a stance. You know, it's not a stance we take in life of being meek. Oh, yeah, I'm so humble. <laughs> because that's just another ego trip. The, the writer Wei Wu Wei, who was, I don't know if you're familiar with him, he's actually, I think, an Englishman or some Europe, Irish, uh, who lived in Asia for a long time, and he really had a profound understanding. And he wrote these wonderful books with these short epigrams, and, which just often touched the heart of things. And he had a wonderful understanding of humility. He said, true humility is the absence of anyone to be proud. You know, and it's such a open way of being. And we know from you know being with or 
seeing the really great beings in this world, there is that humility, but it's not that kind of shrinking stance. It's just people empty of self. The absence of anyone to be proud. So Tenzin Chodrick said that it was letting go of the feelings of self-importance, self-righteousness, which was so important, both in his survival and in his ability to keep his heart open in those circumstances. This fourth insight is something with which we're very familiar, I think, and the Buddha highlighted it in the Dhammapada when he said that hatred never ceases by hatred. Violence never ceases by violence. No, it only ceases by love. And we see this so often in the world, and especially today. I mean, you just see the violence in the Middle East, for example. And it's just violence begets more, violence begets more, begets more, and it seems like this endless cycle, or the war in Iraq, or... You know, there are endless, endless examples. So these are the understandings we can reflect on in our lives. You know, the wisdom that we need for compassion to grow. It's enlarging the context of whatever difficult situation we're in. What human greatness, what greatness of heart can I accomplish in this? And to really hold that question in a very alive way. Understanding the commonality of all beings. We're all in this together. We're all in this samsaric world of suffering and the possibility of being free. Just understanding the commonality arouses compassion. Cultivating humility, a true humility, and the understanding, remembering the understanding, that hatred never ceases by hatred. And compassion and wisdom are both present in our lives. There's really even to a small extent, there's really a remarkable transformation because they bring a creative power to the way we live, the way we act, the way we relate. When wisdom and compassion are both there, they help us go beyond the conventional response. You know, so often I've heard over the years Well, in that situation, it's natural to get angry. Well, it may be normal, but it doesn't mean it's natural. You know, there are other possibilities in nature, in the nature of our awareness, the nature of our mind. And when we have wisdom, when we have compassion, we begin to explore a realm of creativity of response. Years ago, many, many years ago, this was in the 70s, I did a Zen session with Suzaki Roshi. And he's 
I think he may still be alive. I mean, he was old then, or it's kind of in his late 90s maybe now. Very fierce, at least then, I don't know. Now whether he's mellowed. <laughs> but he's really fierce, you know, and, and the whole Zen form is very intense. You know, it's sitting together, walking together, and everything is in that Japanese style is very formal. And we would go for these interviews four times a day, and just it's it was a koan method, you know, where you're given a certain problem or you know, non-rational situation, and you contemplate that, and then you go in and give your response. So four times a day, go in, and I would go in, do my bow, say my koan, give my answer, and he would say, oh, very stupid. <laughs> and then he'd just ring his bell, and, you know, that was it. It was like a whole three minutes was the whole thing. And then later, two, three, four times a day, go in, and each time for days, it was the same response. Oh, very stupid, or good try, but not zen. <laughs> you know, so I was getting more and more uptight, you know, and I, I just dreaded going in. So finally, I was, this is like a week-long session, probably I think on the fifth day or sixth day, he had some compassion for me, and he gave me an easier koan. <laughs> So he asked me, well, how do you manifest Buddha while chanting a sutra? Now, well, that's, the answer seemed obvious, you know, just to come in and chant something. But whether he knew or not, that touched this deep, deep psychological, emotional button in me that went back to my third grade singing teacher saying, just mouth the words. <laughs> <laughs> And it's a sentiment that has been reinforced many times over the years. <laughs> so the idea of kind of going in and performing in this way, you know, I was, it just totally set me off. So I'm sitting there in the meditation hall just rehearsing again and again and again and again, you know, the two lines of chanting that I was going to do. So the bell rings for the interview, kind of go in, do my bow, say the koan, I start chanting. I completely mess it up. I mean, I forget the words. I'm totally off the melody. So I just felt awful. I felt totally, just totally exposed and vulnerable and just horrible. And he just looked at me and said, oh, very good. <laughs> And it was such an incredible moment. Even now, <laughs> this is like 30 years ago. <laughs> it was such an amazing moment. You know, because my heart was so open and so exposed, he just got right in there with that moment of compassion. You know? And it was really quite amazing to see the possibility. Of course, for me, it's like the suffering I was, it was exposed because it was pulled open. But that's what's possible when we allow ourselves to open. When we allow ourselves to get that vulnerable. The beginning of compassion is empathy. You know, and this happens 
when we're willing to come close to the suffering that's there, when we take a moment and we just stop and really feel what it is that's going on in ourselves or in other people. Now we stop and and really feel whether it's physical pain or emotional pain. To stop and feel perhaps the restlessness of the person sitting next to you in the hall. Instead of just being reactive that, oh, they're disturbing my practice. Can we have that empathetic moment of really feeling for the difficulty? Might be opening and feeling the difficulties of people that are really close to us. Or more difficult, can we open and feel the difficulties of people who are doing unskillful things, who are doing harmful things? Can we stop and feel what it is that's going on underneath, you know, and focus on trying to alleviate the suffering that's the cause of the action, on trying to help that person awaken from the ignorance that's causing those actions? Or do we just get caught up in our rush to judgment about their behavior, which is a very common response? And it doesn't mean we don't set appropriate boundaries Compassion doesn't mean we just kind of sit there and let unskillful behavior roll over us. It means we respond, but we really check our motivation. What's the motivation behind our response? The very great lesson of meditative awareness and this is one that continues to grow and deepen in our lives, is that how we respond to and feel about situations, whatever they may be, and they may be very difficult, how we respond to them, how we feel about them, is up to us. And that was the great example of Dr. Tenzin Chodrick. I mean, in the worst, the worst possible situations, he realized that it was within his power to stay open. So can we recognize that? Can we practice that? Being willing to come close to suffering opens the door of compassion, which goes a step further than empathy. Because it's not only feeling what others are going through, which is the empathetic state. But it's also being motivated to act on that feeling. And Thich Nhat Hanh captured this essence so clearly when he said, compassion is a verb. It's not just a feeling, it's, it's that energy, it's the motive to do something. I don't know whether you remember, quite some years ago, maybe it was back in the 80s or 70s, Ram Dass and Paul Gorman wrote this book, How Can I Help? And it's a wonderful book of stories of compassionate action, but the title captures, you know, it's really compassion is that sense of how can I help? 
in this situation. As compassion grows in us, as we're willing to let the suffering in, as we're willing to feel it, you know, and come close to it, we begin to practice quite an active engagement with the suffering in the world, in whatever way for us is appropriate, whatever way is possible. Sometimes it's in very small and unregarded ways. Maybe it's just being kinder to the people around us, you know, or more generous or more forgiving. Just in very simple ways. More patient. The Dalai Lama offers a very good practice in this. He said, I try to treat whoever I meet as an old friend. This gives me a genuine feeling of happiness. It is the practice of compassion. Just, it's such, a, it's such a wonderful notion. Why not meet everyone we meet you know, as an old friend? If we could do that, we'd be pretty happy. Sometimes we can take compassion you know, and move it into a slightly more difficult circumstance, but still, still small. Have you ever tried <coughs> or practiced giving a gift to somebody that you're really having difficulty with? You know, just really responding to the difficulty. Somebody's annoying you or irritating you or doing bad things. Give them a gift. The years I was in India and practicing, uh, had this one friend there. We were practicing together, and his mother hated the fact that he was in India practicing meditation. And he would get these letters from her. I'd rather see you in hell. Than <laughs> I mean, the most intense. So you can imagine being on retreat. You know, being kind of on silent retreat. <laughs> getting this letter from your mother. <laughs> uh, so it was, it was, it was intense. So one time we were with our teacher Deepama, this many of you know, know her and know of her, this wonderful, amazing woman, just the most meta-filled and compassionate and empty and powerful and all of it. I mean, she was the most accomplished being, uh, and very simple. I mean, she just, and she, she was very poor. Uh, she lived just in these two small rooms in kind of a, down a dark alleyway in Calcutta, up four flights of stairs. I was, by our standards, certainly, it was very, very poor. You walked into her room, though, and it was just, it was like walking into a field of light. And she would you know, do a traditional Indian blessing and kind of run her hands over your head and down your body. And it's like just blessing metta, you know, giving metta. And it was just like swooning in rapture. It was so beautiful. So this friend told Deepama about the situation with his mother. And it was so great. She reached under her mattress, which was her bank. <laughs> And she took out 10 rupees, which was a lot of money for her. 
And she took out ten rupees and she gave it to him and she said, buy your mother a gift. You know, and it was just so remarkable. So he did. Right? He went out and he got something and he sent it. And it, it was amazing because it didn't change immediately, but the whole relationship shifted. And by the time he came back from India, he ended up taking care of her for several years in her last, year, in her last years. And it's just turned it around. Instead of responding as we might normally do, you know, with our own anger back or self-righteousness or distancing or whatever, here's 10 rupees, buy her a gift. It's the expression, it's the practice of compassion. Sometimes compassion manifests in very striking ways, some ways of, of incredibly strong determination. Paul Farmer, who maybe some of you know of, he's a doctor who has worked for years in Haiti, in the poor sections of Haiti, in AIDS projects and NTB, and he was so successful in his work that his way of working in these very poor, remote areas uh, really became a worldwide model. And there's a wonderful book on his life. It's called Mountains Beyond Mountains uh, by Tracy Kidder. Uh, I would recommend you. It's it's tremendously inspiring. So in the book, there's a story of his walking to this very remote village. He was living in a remote place, but like a seven-hour walk to meet with some families. And people were criticizing him for spending so much time for so few people you know, when he could be helping so many others closer by. So this is what his response was. If you say that seven hours' walk is too long to walk for two families of patients, you're saying that their lives matter less than some others. And the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that's wrong with the world. But again, to translate it from holding that as an ideal and to actually practice living that way, this is a great challenge. This is not an easy thing to do. But can we set a direction? Can we begin to practice it? Sometimes compassion manifests really in acts of tremendous courage. You know, and you think of beings like Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma, you know, who's been under house arrest for countless years and engaged, you know, in this endeavor for democracy in Burma. Or, you know, in, in the face of tremendous violence. So you think of somebody like Martin Luther King and, you know, leading the marches surrounded by hatred, surrounded by violence, you know, and just marching and holding that space of love and nonviolence. I mean, it's, it's tremendously inspiring just to think of that possibility. 
we think of the Buddha, you know, motivated to seek enlightenment over countless lifetimes, innumerable lifetimes. Motivated by the wish not simply to alleviate the suffering of particular situations, but actually to get at the root of suffering. To really penetrate deeply into the forces of greed and hatred and delusion which drive all lives. What I think is really important for us as we contemplate all this is to see that there is no particular prescription for what we should do. It's not that we should necessarily emulate the actions of anybody else. There's no hierarchy of compassionate action. Because the field of compassion is limitless. It is the field of suffering beings. Our compassion action could take the form of activism. It could take the form of being in the front lines, of getting out there and engaging actively with the suffering that's in the world. It could also take the form of living in a cave in the Himalayas, practicing awareness with the motivation that it be for the welfare and benefit of all. Now, how many lifetimes did the Bodhisattva practice as a renunciate? Before his wisdom and compassion flowered, you know, in the great moment of his enlightenment, it was through his efforts over all those years and lifetimes that we're sitting here together. You know, so the power and the result of his compassion is just immeasurable. And yet, during any one of those lifetimes, when he was off in a cave, could well imagine people saying, oh, what's that old guy doing in the cave? He's not helping anybody. So we want to be careful about not judging a snapshot of a life. It all has to do with motivation. What's the motive behind what we do? And to see that there are many, many possibilities. Maybe familiar in some of the <coughs> in some of the Buddhist traditions, there are what are called the bodhisattva vows. You know, where you take the vow to liberate all beings, to save all beings, and you know there there. Are four traditional vows. And I would be reading these earlier on in my practice and think, that's a nice idea, but... I mean, it just seemed totally impossible. I can barely take care of my own mind, much less undertake this vow to save all beings, to enlighten all beings. And it took me a long while to realize that the possibility of undertaking those vows, for me anyway, rested on the understanding 
in the realization of emptiness, of selflessness. If I was, if I was shouldering this endeavor, you know, to save all beings on the shoulders of self, that's way, way, way beyond what could ever be possible. But to see that bodhisattvic action come out of emptiness, being the expression, the activity of emptiness, of selflessness, then anything is possible. Kenzi Rinpoche, who was a great Tibetan master, he just expressed this so clearly. He said, when you recognize the empty nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So the work we do here of really looking into and seeing the empty, selfless nature, freeing ourselves from the burden of self, of self-reference, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. Compassion is the activity of emptiness. And from the other side, we also can purify our minds by putting the welfare and benefit of others before ourselves, before oneself. And in this way, we really diminish this feeling of self-importance. This way of practice of putting others before oneself is beautifully expressed in a text. It's called Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life by Shantideva, who was 8th century, 7th century, somewhere back there, 6th century uh, adept, spiritual adept in India. And the, the Dalai Lama is a great devotee of Shantideva. In this guide to Bodhisattva's way of life, which which really is just that. It's a handbook for how to be a Bodhisattva. So there's one part of it which is called the seven-branched prayer. And I just want to read part of it because it kind of captures this aspiration. It says, for everything that lives as far as are the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. Like the earth and the pervading elements enduring like the sky itself endures, for boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. For all those ailing in the world until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings, who are poor and destitute, may I become a plentiful treasure and lie before them closely in their reach, a varied source of all that they might need. 
My body thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away, withholding nothing, to bring about the benefit of beings. Well, it's possible to hear this, or hear teachings like this, and really get inspired by the tremendous generosity of heart expressed in that. I mean, dedicating one's life to the benefit of all beings. But we might hear it, and also, even as we are inspired by it, feel a bit daunted. Would we ever be able to live with this degree of compassion? Would we really be able to live with this dedication to the service of all beings? It seems important to me that in this practice, in this practice of compassion, we need great humility. Now this is a huge thing, huge. And we can just begin to plant the seeds. And maybe it's even the seed, maybe it's even the aspiration to have the aspiration to live our lives for the benefit of others. You know, we can start in a very humble way. We just plant these seeds within ourselves. And this is really the teaching of bodhicitta. Bodhi means wisdom, awakening, jitta is heart. (coughs) So it's the heart-mind, the heart-mind of awakening. And it means that motivation of that aspiration, may my life, may my practice be for the benefit of all. And just as a way of planting the seed, you know, if this is inspiring to you in some way, just at the beginning of a day or the beginning of a sitting, we might articulate that. May this practice be for the benefit of all. Or at the end of a sitting, dedicating the merit to the welfare of all. The seed is very powerful. Now, we shouldn't ignore, we shouldn't overlook what it means to plant small seeds. Thoreau just said this so beautifully. He said, though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. And we know that. Now, where do those giant redwoods come from? From a seed. So we plant these seeds of the kind heart. We plant the seeds of compassion, of bodhicitta. And slowly, it grows into being the guiding principles 
of our lives. And even in those times when we're not so wise, or we're not so compassionate, it can still be the reference point for us that reminds us of other possibilities. It reminds us that there are other choices we might make. I'd just like to close with, again, something from the Dalai Lama. If we were aware that we all contain love within us, and that we could foster and develop it, we would certainly give it far more attention than we do. Changes in attitude never come easily. The development of love and compassion is a wide round curve that can be negotiated only slowly. It's not a sharp corner that can be turned all at once. It comes with daily practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.